0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, thanks for tuning in to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Nafisa Andrabi. Today, we're joined by Dr. Jeff Guhin. Jeff is an assistant professor of sociology at UCLA. His research is centered around education, culture, religion, and theory. He joins us today to talk about his new book, Agents of God, Boundaries and Authority in Muslim and Christian Schools. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. I'm really glad we were
2: I really appreciate it.
1: I'm glad we are finally able to make this conversation happen and I'm really looking forward to talking about the book.
2: Yeah, thank you. And sorry I cut off your very smooth introduction there. That was <laughs> uh, Yeah, it- I'm thrilled to be here.
1: Really not so smooth, but I appreciate it. Um, okay, so this book is really an intersection of I think a lot of your interests, right? Education, religion, theory and culture. Um, so how did you come into this project specifically? You know, what in your academic career led you to this book project and these research interests more broadly?
2: Wow, what a great question. Um, so, huh. so you know, you got to write a dissertation to finish your PhD. So you got to write about something. Um, and, you know, I, I really liked the idea of ethnography. I liked the idea of hanging around people and, you know, learning their stories and, and And learning from their stories and sort of thinking about kind of a theoretical argument and you know the sort of old joke that uh a dissertation is a is an intellectuals therapy you know like there's a way that like a dissertation is just your way of figuring out your past and um i didn't want that to be the case i kind of wanted to write when i came to grad school i kind of wanted to get away from my sort of own biography and my own biographical interest in religion and education, but they just kept coming back. So, I, uh, you know, I I grew up Catholic. I actually almost became a Jesuit priest. Um, I'd probably still call myself Catholic, but um, my relationship to theism is much more complicated. But you know, the Catholicism has a really important uh, um, kind of structuring power in my life in terms of how I think about things and. How I understand things and and how i think about you know um life and pain and death and all these things so even though i'm not sure i believe in god or an afterlife or anything like that i'm still very very formed by by my religious background and so you know religion has kind of always uh, been something big in my life and thought a lot about it and uh and i taught high school for three years and, and really loved being a teacher and thinking a lot about teaching and so um You know, when I was thinking about my dissertation, it just, I just wound up thinking about religious schools. And I actually had taught at a Catholic school. And, but you know, I wanted to study, I didn't exactly want to study Catholicism because, first off, I didn't know if I could be objective about it. And also, I was just, I was feeling really liberated from being in a very small Catholic world for a really long time. Like I went to Catholic school from first grade through college, and then I taught at a Catholic. I was at a Catholic social service agency, and I almost became a Jesuit priest. And I um, then I taught at a Catholic high school, and you know, and I was writing for Catholic magazines and doing all this kind of Catholic stuff, and. I got to graduate school, which is a secular graduate school, and I thought, wow, this is a totally bigger, different world. And I kind of loved it. And I didn't really want to go back um, to Catholicism right away. And so, um, you know, studying Muslims and evangelicals just seemed interesting, uh, partially because it was two groups that, you know, a lot of people didn't like. I, I don't know if it wound up in the book, but in the dissertation, I had this kind of throwaway line that I can tell if I'm in a red state or a blue state based on which of the two groups I'm studying, you're more afraid of. Um, and so that was, you know, another thing I was interested in. So that's a very long answer to kind of why, why I studied what I studied.
1: No, that's great. And I'm still, I'm still stuck on how our dissertations are just like a little mini form of therapy for us, which is (laughs) painfully true. Had (laughs) not thought about it that way, but here we are. Uh, Um, need therapy to get through the dissertation and the dissertation by the way as someone who
2: i have a diagnosed mental illness and real therapy is much better than a dissertation i can just tell all of you who are struggling with mental illness but uh you know dissertation is therapy is nice too
1: yeah i i hear that um i hear that as a fellow person also diagnosed with mental illness um okay so Early on in the book, you write that schools are locations in which adults organize students' lives and moral commitments with better or worse success. So can you just tell us a bit about the four schools that are at the center of this book before we um, dive a bit more into them? Yeah,
2: yeah. So there's there's two, uh, two Muslim and two... Uh evangelical christian schools and i guess i should say sunni muslim and evangelical christian and um they're all kind of in the greater new york city area Um, and there's al Amal, which is um in uh, one of the two muslim schools and then there's al-haq which is another one of the two muslim schools and then there is good tree one of the evangelical schools and apostles and so it was that good tree the longest. I was there for all three quarters. I was doing this research. And then I was at um, Amul for the first two, for the first two quarters. Uh, and then I was asked to leave, which is a whole separate story. That's very exciting. Um, and then I, um, because I was asked to leave the first Muslim school, I decided I wanted to add two additional schools. Um, and maybe that could give me some analytical leverage as well. In hindsight, I don't actually know if I had to do that, but it seemed useful at the time. And um, so I added, you know, this School of Apostles uh, and this um, School of Huck. And uh, yeah, and they're all, you know, they're all pretty straightforward um, examples of the forms, right? Um, there is, uh, you know, obviously some diversity because they're in the New York City area. They're a little bit more uh Progressive-minded, or maybe even just centrist, uh, then you might find in some other parts of the country. But you know, the uh, the Muslim schools were were dominated by immigrant Muslims, um, which isn't always true, uh, but um, was 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 true there, um, and uh, or immigrant Muslim kids, really children of immigrants. Almost all those kids were born in the United States, and then um, the evangelical schools. We're actually a pretty big mix of races. Um, the school of Apostles was uh, uh, minority white. I mean, not by a lot, but um, there was a there were more students of color than white kids there. And uh, Apostles was, uh, I mean, again, you know, this is in a suburb of New York City, and so it's not um, kind of as radically Bible Belt as you might have found at an evangelical school in, in Kentucky or 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 anywhere else in the Bible belt, but, um, you know, they're pretty conservative and, uh, and, um, it was probably more white than the area around it, just cause it was in a New York suburb, but, um, you know, not too far from the broader representation of the United States in general. So it wasn't only white kids at that school. Um, and then, You know, all the schools are pretty much middle class. I I guess the one that was a little bit different was Al-Haq, which was a little bit, it had a few upper middle class parents um, who were doing a bit better. Uh, But, you know, um, there weren't a lot of super rich kids at these schools that I could tell anyway. I didn't do a survey or have any way to get access to that information. Um, And you know, like I said in the book, I mean, in some ways, all of these schools exist because the parents are conservative, right? The majority of kids in um, both Muslim, sorry, the majority of Muslim kids in America and the majority of uh, evangelical kids in America go to public schools. And so if you um, are going to one of these private schools, it's because your parents want to conserve something, right? And often that, what they want to conserve is related to politics, but it's not just politics, right? They want to conserve a kind of religious identity and a, a sense of self, uh, a way of behaving, especially along the lines of gender um, and other things uh, that they they hope this school will be able to do, and they hope that this school will organize uh, your life in a certain way. And that's certainly why my parents sent me to Catholic schools. And so, um, you know, there is this sense of the rest of the world. Um, as exemplified by public schools kind of being a place of danger and that's that's in common between all four schools
1: wow, thanks for that um i have lots of questions and want to jump around in all the things that i've written um, that i took notes about but um i want i really want to come back to this idea of kind of um, race and identity within the schools first i think i'll ask um you know so you were talking about public, you just brought up public schools and this idea of kind uh, public schools as dangerous is something that comes up in the book. Um, you have talked about it. So, could you talk a little bit about what the um, administrators and teachers and students uh, were were saying about public schools and what kind of what some of that narrative is? Um, since, since we were starting to go there,
2: sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so. You know that the two most salient things that came up were public schools are literally places of danger, right so there were all these narrations of drugs and violence and um, and illicit sex uh, and potential pregnancy and all these kinds of other things that could happen if you went to a public school which I, I don't think empirically is you know even even the quote unquote worst school in the New York City area you know isn't like a literal war zone that it was often described to me as and a lot of especially the two suburban schools i mean they they would have gone to pretty pretty good public schools but there's this kind of narrative of a public schools as a place of real danger but in some ways even even more important and and probably more described than that was this idea of caring that and this was at all four schools that teachers here really care that the community and students really care and that public school teachers it's just a job and they don't care about you you know, the way that, um, the teachers here and the community here cares about you, Uh, which again is, I've done research in public schools too. I also don't think it's accurate, but it was, it was an interesting, um, distinction. Uh, and the last one, you know, which is, is not for nothing is you won't get access to, um, the capacity to live your religious life, right? You won't be able to talk about Jesus as easily in class. And, but evangelicals especially evolution will be taught i mean that was a very big deal but one of the science teachers at, at good tree told me she left her job teaching at a public school which paid just much more money um, because she didn't want to teach evolution you know and so that was a big deal for her um and you know i talked to uh, a muslim uh teacher this is actually in, in the book uh, at um and he said you know he really likes that he can pray every day and it's just really easy to pray every day um and there are there are times for him to make salah um which you know and it, it's not complicated and he doesn't have to find a way to do it or and you know i'm sure he, he probably he's a very smart and charismatic guy and hopefully he would have had a principal that maybe would have tried to work with his schedule but um he would have had to have found all these things to do at a public school whereas it was just very easy for not only to make prayer, but to make prayer actually close by his children who were at the school, too, which was deeply meaningful for him, you know. And so there is um, this real sense of a community in these schools that um, they didn't think would be available to them at public schools.
1: Mm mm-hmm. um, OK. I, so one of the other things that you talk about that's like happening within these school settings, right? So, so you've touched on sort of community and these aspects of caring. Um, and another thing that you brought up was the politics of national identity and sort of identity formation in these spaces, which I thought was really fascinating. Oh, um, thanks. Yeah. And so I'm curious about kind of what are some of these politics um, and how are schools contributing to the formation of a national identity, these schools in mm-hmm. particular? Um, and how is how did you see kind of national identity and the politics of that being constructed in these different school settings?
2: You know what's so interesting about this? So I'm working on another book right now about civic education in American public schools and How civic education in the American public schools I studied and in in a a lot of the literature on civics is generally not great. Like it can be really good if it's done well and done with certain things. But there's this fascinating way that in a lot of post-colonial literature and literature on nationalism, like education is the thing, right? Education is the thing that builds the state. And yet... um, you know, Ernest Gellner has this famous quote in *Nations and Nationalism* that, like Weber's wrong about the monopoly of violence being the most important thing for the state; it's actually the monopoly of education. And so, um, you know, nation building is a huge deal, and uh, via schools. But you know, what's interesting is, I you know, I studied six public schools for this other book, and I didn't see that much concern about the nation really at all. Like, it just didn't show up that often, and it was much more salient in these private schools i studied like they were talking about america and what america means a lot more often than i saw in public schools and i think the reason for that is this is what dewey talks about when he talks about habits is you only think about something when your habit is interrupted right you only think about something when when it's challenged when you, can, you so you're not thinking about your walking until you trip and then you have to think about your walking and so uh, and I think, in some ways, both these Muslim and Evangelical schools were sort of constantly tripping about the nation. Right? They were constantly bothered or interrupted by it. And I didn't realize that when I was writing the book, but I'm realizing it now. And um, and you know, uh, the way I, I put it, and which I think is basically true, is that Muslims, neither of them, feel like they have America. Neither of them feel like they're recognized or or given their legitimate space in America. But uh, Evangelicals. The evangelicals I worked with feel like it was taken from them. Um, and uh, the Muslims I worked with feel like it still hasn't been given to them despite you know every possible thing they could do uh, to deserve it. Um, and I read it, I wrote this book, you know well, I did the research for this well before Trump. I wrote it after after Trump, but I, I did the research for it before um and so you know in the obama era there was a little more optimism about islam in america but this was still post 9 11. you know while i was doing research at these schools these muslim schools um, you know it was discovered that uh the nypd had gone undercover into a bunch of uh, muslim student organizations at local colleges and so you know um it's not like uh islamophobia Was you know really in the decline, and then Trump brought it back. Like it's it's been pretty bad for a long time, and so um, there was a real struggle in in the Muslim schools. And what struck me especially was most people were, despite all the crap, pretty optimistic. And it was really striking to me. Um, I remember one teacher. I don't know if this wound up in the book or not. I think it did. One teacher was talking about how a big difference between him and his mom, he's, he's from Palestine and his mom's from Palestine is his mom would be terrified to ever disagree with a cop who pulled her over. She would just say he was right. And he grew up in America and he said, you know, if I thought a cop was wrong, I would tell the cop he was wrong, you know, and I would video him and I would send it in and I would, you know, I would assert my rights as an American. Um, and that kind of confidence and and trust in the process was, was really striking to me. Um, in the Muslim schools. Whereas, you know, in the evangelical schools, there was just this constant sort of note of despair, right? That, you know, the the, the Christian America is lost. And um, there's, there was much more and more of a fortress mentality that we have to, you know, just get ready because the persecution is just on its way. And, and they really interpreted lots of things already as persecution of Christians, and they're just going to keep getting worse. And there were, you know, multiple references to the early Christian martyrs uh, in Rome and all these kinds of um, descriptions of, of Christians as the sort of real real minority and the real um, victim. And there was a sense that America was a Christian nation and it kind of tragically lost its way. But, you know, for, for all four of the schools, there was this continual sense that, um, that America is a problem. Right. That was actually, for a while, that was the title of the book, The Problem of America. And I changed it since then. But America for all four schools was this very salient problem. And and, um, it was a problem in sort of different directions, but it was a problem nonetheless.
1: Wow. Thank you for that. I mean, there's so many things there that are so interesting, right? I mean, one thing I'm just thinking about is this idea of like only when habits are being broken or when we're tripped up do we. Um, kind of have to think about these, these ways in which, uh, you know, school, uh, public schools as places where we're also being nationalized. Right. But it just in most inversive ways. Um, And then just this idea that, okay, so America, you know, America is a problem in these private schools. How, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious about how public schools, um, you know, whether just how much it's how, how America and Americanism is um, is normalized in those spaces um, I think I mean I can tell you what
2: my argument is for the next book, which is yeah, that um, the I hope no one well I whoever hears this contact me because I'm sending out the article soon and the book proposal is is, is uh, being considered. So you'd have to cite me. Uh, I hope, um, but I uh, basically my argument, and I'm not sure if this is right. It could be totally wrong, but I think it's right. Um, the argument is, you know, the sort of puzzle is like why is uh, um, education is seen as this incredibly important space of nationalization and post-colonial literature and literature on nationalism and civics education in the united states seems generally so anemic right except for you know there are certain spaces in which it's actually really impressive and you know kids are really socialized into a really sort of robust democratic education and a sense of self but generally speaking you sort of take a test about how a bill becomes a law and maybe you take some sort of quiz to figure out whether or not you're, or a a survey to figure out if you're a Democrat or a Republican, and you kind of go on your way and and you really study for the tests that have the Regents in New York City or will be on whatever standardized test you have to actually, the the test the school is being judged on and you take the ACT and SAT and go on your way, right? And um, civics is just not seen as that big of a deal. So there's, there's two ways to answer that question. One is to say that America's already done all the civics education it has to do because, like, a, the, a big piece of the kind of nationalism literature in, or the post colonial literature on education as a sort of coercive mechanism of the state is is actually very straightforward stuff, like making sure everyone literally just speaks the same actual language and kind of forcing that on them um, and forcing sort of certain ways of acting and behaving um, that didn't exist before, right? So, creating a kind of consistency. And so you you could make the argument that the reason American civic education is so anemic is the real civic education that had to happen has already happened. and And that's an interesting argument, but I don't think it's quite right, because I do think you actually still need some sort of ongoing civic process to happen. And so, you know, what I found in my interviews with all these students and what I'm working on in this article and book is what I'm calling the moral invisible hand, which is basically the idea... Uh, And and along with a moral invisible hand, what I'm calling magical citizenship, Um, both of which together is this kind of idea that if everyone is their best self and just doesn't harm anyone else, magically society just works itself out and no one has to actually do anything they don't really want to do. Um, And so self-actualization becomes your actual most meaningful citizenship obligation Um, and human capital and the language of human capital is in some ways the most important kind of citizenship. And once you recognize that, you actually see human capital stuff all over the place in schooling. It's constant um, in the way that a kind of durkheimian moral education or a more robust, um, deeply nationalistic education would be. Um, and so, you know, m- my hunch is that um, in a lot of American public schools, the deep, deep concern is to give kids A sense of agency right a sense of capacity to do something which you know from where some students come that's a huge accomplishment right like that's that's nothing to sneeze at but the the challenge and the distinction from you know uh, a a school with a, a more intense identity and it could be a religious identity but it could also be you know a secular identity um is the question of agency for what right and so if you're sort of in the human capital world all that really matters is just your agency, right? Just your interests. And you will sort of act on those agency and act on those interests in a way that will complement how everyone else acts on their agency and interest. And everyone will go into the market and the market will flourish via this process. I'm calling the moral invisible hand and society just kind of works itself out magically because everyone has their own interests that comp but eventually complement everyone else's interests. Um, but, you know, if you think in terms of uh, uh, a more robust sense of, of, of civic obligation or any kind of moral obligation or just the idea of um, what some philosophers call spheres of obligation, like who are we obligated to, whose suffering matters, um, then it's actually much harder. And what you what you enjoy doing might not be as useful or relevant or important um, as what you must do to alleviate the suffering of others. Um, and, and that and what's useful about religious schools and you know, again, I'm not really sure if I believe in God, so I'm not saying religion has to be the solution here, but, um, and I think in many ways, religion is a huge problem. But one nice thing about certain ways of doing religion is that it gives you a language to justify and explain why other people's suffering should matter to you. Um, And in a lot of American education, that's just not the point. The point is your own agency um, and your own self-actualization. And my, my hunch is that, in some ways, that is our our civic education is, is self actualization uh, and the maximization of our agency.
1: Wow, I love all of this. Okay, so oh, thank you. That this is reminding me of is I was just remembering, um, you know, my my, so my parents were born in Pakistan, uh, okay. the first generation, kind of after partition, and you know, my, my grandparents went through partition. Um, and the, I'm so
2: sorry, that's brutal.
1: Yeah, it's lots lots of intergenerational trauma there. Yeah that you know hopefully my therapist will quickly heal
2: um (laughs) yeah yeah. Yeah, it's like two weeks it'll be fine
1: yeah, yeah we're good we're good we're on the fast fast plan um and, you know, yeah, the sort of in the aftermath of post-British colonization, right? I, I remember, so my dad is an economist, but he does work on education in Pakistan. And we've had these conversations, particularly what you're saying about kind of this nationalizing agenda of, you know, even just getting everyone to speak the same language, right? So the British came in and they essentially declared um, that all of these, you know, for example, Punjabi and different languages were were no longer going to be the language of the country, right? And so everyone in some ways became illiterate overnight when that decision was made, when the language of sort of governance was changed. And then kind of in that post-partition, um, post-colonization era, right, the roles of schools in, yeah, I mean, just the thinking about language, thinking about what does it mean to have a national identity, especially when you're a new country. I, I just remember my parents um, talking about having to memorize all these very nationalistic poems and, um, you know, these recitations and things that they had to do in, in their various schools, Um and uh, yeah, it just, you know, it makes sense that that's kind of a huge and formative part of how you do get a, a new generation of people who are living in a country for the very first time to, um, you know, to kind of share in those, in those values.
2: Um, right. No, it's, it's a, I mean, education is a hugely important part of any nationalism or post-colonial, especially in any nationalism story, but especially post-colonial nationalism, I mean, it, it, it's hard to imagine how that mechanism could work without it. And to be honest, I mean, this, this is true. I mean, most people date the the origins of schooling as we now think of schooling to Prussian efforts at nationalism. And so, you know, nationalism and schooling have had a very long relationship. Right.
1: Well, the other thing that I'm thinking about what you were saying with kind of this, this moral invisible hand and magical citizenship stuff is, um, and you know, that the role that religion can potentially serve, right. Is in taking is the language both the language that you were mentioning, but also kind of taking us out of self, right? And so taking us out of self and putting us into um, what does it mean to behave selflessly or to, right, I don't mean, yeah, just get out of self. Um, and there, I, I, just, I just want to make two really
2: quick things yeah. that I make in the article in the book, but I just, I think it's really important, especially for a white dude to say, is the is, is one... Um, lots of moral education is creepy and terrible, right? Like the people who did um, or sort of care about others' education, like the people who did um, Native American and Indigenous boarding schools around the world thought of themselves as doing moral education and they were doing cultural genocide and, and, and sort of massive epistemic violence, right? And um, so I think that you have to be careful when you want to do this kind of um broader cultural education or moral education to have a, a kind of humility about the kind of violence you might inadvertently be doing um and, and the second thing is that you know when we talk about obligation i think that's really really important and i think we we live in a world where we are obligated to each other but i also recognize as a white male that those obligations don't tend to fall on people like me right and so i think that it's, it's very important when we talk about obligation and sort of oppose it to agency, um, that we recognize that, you know, it's not white men who usually wind up doing the dishes after dinner, right. And so um, there's a way that the kind of obligations of society, uh, if we want to talk about those and talk about how we socialize children into them, um, that we talk about in a way that recognizes the kind of inequalities and inequities that tend to go on with those kinds of conversations.
1: Right. Great, great two points. Um, it's also just making me think about this idea of individualism and, and lots of conversations that I think are happening in the U.S. right now, um, you know, when we're thinking about kind of what does it look like to live with the pandemic and conversations happening around vaccination and everything and this idea of like our obligation to our communities and sort of the the socialization that we've had at this individual level, right? Thinking about ourselves, our own agency, Um individualism just broadly and kind of of the the broader consequences of that that we're seeing play out and i think we'll probably see play out more and more in the coming years
2: totally yeah i mean i think it's going to get worse before it gets better so unfortunately um yeah i mean i don't know i don't know what it's going to look like um but i am um the covid thing especially has just made me very depressed and I, I wouldn't say cynical, but sad about the degree to which um, a weird kind of hyper individualism still has power in the United States. Um, although, and then it gets connected to the sort of, you know, fascist figure of Donald Trump, which is even weirder. But anyway, that's American right, politics. I'm
1: curious about like, so so. do you think that the schools and the, the communities that you were embedded in during this ethnographic work, you know, do you think that that kind of I mean, we haven't even really talked about, you know, what you talk about in terms of boundaries and authority, but do you think that the rhetoric in those schools would support this idea of, um, putting our communities first, or like, how do you think that these kinds of what conversations, were yeah. how, how would those play out in, um, in a space that is so much more governed by religion?
2: Yeah, it's a great question.
1: You know, I... <laughs>
2: I wish I could give you a really solid answer, but I'm increasingly, I mean, I was convinced of this even when in graduate school, um, either in graduate school or in a postdoc, I wrote this paper that I'm, I'm really proud of, That I think is one of my best, if not my best papers. It, it's, it's just about religion as a site rather than religion as a category. And so one of the things I really try to do in my work on religion and my work on schools is to really sort of think of them as sites to sort of build broader theory. Um, And, and, you know, I, which isn't to say it's wrong to think about religion as a category, that's fine, but that's just not my, my bag. And I think sociology can be more, sociology, religion could be more theoretically generative and useful to other academics and just people in general. If like Weber or Durkheim or others, we thought of religion as just a place to build cool concepts like taboo and um, charismatic authority and things like that. But all of which is to say, I'm actually kind of skeptical of religion having any sort of causal boundaries right like there being anything more like well because religions here x is going to occur like i just think it's religion is such an amorphous category that means so many things to so many people um and it's different in so many contexts that i'm just not sure um what religion demarcates you know but but i can't say like i said before because i said this about schools i do think having a school with any kind of ideological consistency and kind of ideological vision that is connected to some sort of group membership and some kind of moral obligations to others, um, which a lot of religions have and a lot of ways of being religious have, um, can create a kind of a different kind of experience of schooling and a different experience of sort of what you are as a political being and a citizen as a result of that schooling. Um, But it doesn't have to, right? And, you know, um, the, Fox News is a powerful, powerful institution in and of itself, right? And or organization or whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, I'm increasingly convinced that um, conservative media in America, um, and then, you know, what my friends Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead call Christian nationalism. Um, it has a kind of isomorphic power that makes it or sorry i should it has a kind of uh, power to sort of create the form of what things will be and set that for others that makes it really hard uh, to get around and so um i i think that in another unit in another universe the the people i i knew at these schools would probably find trump really disgusting but i think they live in a universe that has framed the threat of liberals and the threat of secular elites as so scary and so intense that they're willing to sort of get on board trump and see him as a lesser evil and even possibly see him as a good now you know i've checked back with some friends um who are involved in those in the the communities i was at before the the muslim communities unsurprisingly aren't a big fan of trump but um i checked back with some friends of the evangelical communities and Um, you know, they've said that people that they know, people that like Trump, they know people that don't like Trump. And, you know, I don't know how representative their experiences are either of of what those schools are like now. So I I couldn't actually tell you, um, how they fall on these things. But, uh, if they're like a lot of the other evangelicals, I do know, you know, um, quite a few of them, especially white evangelicals, but not just white evangelicals have come around to seeing Trump is kind of, um, this uh this pagan figure um who is sort of sent to save the israelites and, and you know there is there is biblical precedent for this right and so very few of them kind of think of him as actually a christian but they do sometimes think of him as uh as sent by god right um to to protect christians from the kind of the evil secularists who are coming to take their take their lives and take their world and and in that sense um it's, it's of a piece with and not that distinct from what I saw when, uh, when I was there and Obama was president in that um, there was already a deep sense of victimization and a deep sense of, of resentment and frustration. And so it's actually not surprising to me how those communities could go from that to accepting someone like Trump.
0: Wow.
2: that's shipstation.com with the code pod.
1: Um what like incredible insight to be able to have at this time though, you know. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> one of the so one you you mentioned a few things. I, I also really love your paper of religion as a site and I use it to think about um kind of how we how we talk about Muslim racialization right now and how can we Oh, thanks. Yeah. So uh, I've enjoyed that, but, and kind of building off of that, I, you know, this, this, this question has more to do with my own interests. Um, and because I was thinking about pursuing this note of thinking at some point in my dissertation, I've come very far from that now, but, uh, you know, so in, for example, these all Muslim schools that are centered around, uh, collective Muslim socialization, um, I'm curious about, so you started to talk about kind of the demographic characteristics earlier on, but where does race fit into the socialization So, like, do students opt for a Muslim American identity instead of a Black, Arab, Afghan, Pakistani American identity? And does the collective Muslim identity ever rupture around race at this point? And I guess the question applies to the Christian schools as well.
2: Sure. So, I have a paper about this. It's called Colorblind Islam. Um, And uh, for those that don't know, there's this fantastic work in, in the sociology of race and ethnicity, um, especially around Eduardo Bonilla-Silva on, um, on colorblind racism and, and the problems of, of sort of white people who say, you know, we just don't see race, race doesn't really matter anymore. Uh, and they're not biologically racist. So they wouldn't say like a black person is necessarily worse, um, than a white person because of being black. Right. But they wind up, um, I mean they might be that too but uh they, they sort of describe themselves as very much not biologically racist but um what they will do is they will say things about black culture or uh black families or all sorts of other things that very much maintain um racism uh on an interpersonal level but then also uh an institutional and structural level and um you know uh Racialization of Islam uh, in the United States especially is um, a real thing. Uh, and any any Muslim in America um, who in any way can be sort of described as Muslim, whether it's because of, of their skin color or something they're wearing um, or some sort of association, um, they, they experience this racialization all the time. And There's fantastic, really important work on this. Um, one of the challenges with this work, and I would say even in the two or three years since I since I wrote this article, uh, that's changing a lot. So when I wrote this article, I was referencing some work that I really admire um, by uh, by people who were just talking to Muslims themselves about um, their experiences of racialization. And since then, that work has grown even more and really exploded in, in really uh, useful and important ways. Um, but there's been a lot of work before then, especially on sort of top-down processes of racialization. So especially in the media and sort of very Islamophobic portrayals of Islam in the media. And then, you know, via the state, um, sort of state distinctions of who's a terrorist, who we should stop at the airport, all these kinds of things. Um, and, and what's complicated when you look at, at Muslims themselves, um, especially immigrant Muslims, is um, a real tension right and so and i think anyone uh who's a muslim in america um and who knows you know immigrant muslim communities would, would recognize this tension and this heterogeneity that there are many immigrant muslims who are very welcoming um and very aware of of black muslims and the importance of black muslims uh in american muslim history and in the history of american islam and um and there are really lovely and beautiful uh, mosques and masjids and Muslim schools that um, are very diverse and have a wide variety of, of Muslims and white Muslim converts and Asian Muslim converts and Latinx converts or people who have been, you know, Muslim for a long time. Um, Albanian Muslims are always confusing to people because they always assume they're converts. Um, and, then, uh, and then there's... Um, you know, and obviously the experience of, of Black Islam. Um, but then there are also experiences uh, in immigrant Muslim communities that can be very racist, right? And very unwelcoming, uh, especially to Black Muslims, and say things about Black Muslims um, that are racially charged, if not racist. And, um, you know, I, t- I explore that a little bit in this article, which is really sort of more of a synthesis. And, you know, I point to this. Um, thing that I I see happening here at UCLA and I see happening around a lot of the world where there is increasingly among Muslims uh, born in the United States or or Western Europe after maybe 1980 or so, or or a little bit earlier, there is increasingly a kind of brown solidarity and less of a concern about, you know, being around Muslims who are from a very specific region of the world Um, and really a sense of of sort of Muslim solidarity and, and solidarity across racialized groups. Um, but it's attention, right? And so, you know, what I write, write about in this article, and I write about a little bit in the book, is is how I would hear um, the Muslims at these schools who were themselves, you know, racialized subjects, right? These were Arab Americans and South Asian Americans, saying things I, I would interpret as racist, right, um, about Black people and about Black Muslims, and you know how to how to think about that and how they thought about it and talked about it. And obviously, again, there was diversity uh, amongst themselves, too, and how they talked about these and experienced these things. So, you know, it's, it's a complicated, thorny issue in the ummah, but, um, which is the global Muslim community. And one of the challenges is, this is why I called it colorblind Islam, is you would have some parents, uh, and older Muslims, who would say, oh, well, there can't be racism in Islam because we're all one ummah, right? We're all one ummah. We all get along. You know, white Americans are racist, but Muslims can never be racist. So we're all fine. Um, you know, and that's just, I mean, so, uh, sometimes that is true and that's great. And sometimes that's not true. Right. And so, um, it, it gets complicated. And then a- in terms of, of race for the evangelical schools, you know, it was, it was even more just a straightforward example of colorblind ideology, right? So there was the sense that, um, and, you know, any reason a black person wouldn't be successful in America would just be because of either problems in the black community or their own inadequacies, um, and what was interesting was that was certainly true in the predominantly white suburban school, but it was even true in the, you know, minority white, um, more urban school, right? Where this kind of conservative politics was still very, very powerful among among teachers and among students when I did interviews with students. Um, uh, and, um, you know, there were a lot of faculty that really didn't like Obama and these faculty were not, were not white guys. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh it, in, in, in my sense of evangelicalism is that just that's gotten even the alignment of the Republican party with the evangelicalism, which was already pretty strong, has only tightened um, since then
1: thanks for that um, okay so okay, instead of just that you know, continuing to ask the same prime questions that uh, are interesting to me. I also want to think about, or I also want to give you an opportunity to talk about some of the bigger picture ideas that come up in the book, right? So um, you talk about boundaries and external authorities as being kind of critical to communal socialization and this being something that plays out in the school. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, um, you know, these ideas of boundaries and external authorities. Um, you talk about boundaries being essential and accidental. Uh, so just some of those some of those ideas, if you could describe yeah,
2: them. Yeah, I can totally give you the elevator pitch. And if you think they're interesting, we can talk more about them. And if you don't, that's fine too. Or if you think other things are more interesting. So really quick, I have six chapters, um, six body chapters, and then I have an intro, a conclusion, and a method section. And then, in, in, in the first three uh, three body chapters, I have one on politics, one on gender, and one on sexuality on the internet. And in all three of those... I'm interested in boundaries Um, and because really what I'm interested in in the whole book is practices and really moving the study of religion and sociology, especially towards more of a focus on practices. And, you know, in in an article I sent out a long time ago from this book um, that wound up getting published somewhere else, a reviewer got mad at me for comparing Muslims to evangelicals because historically sort of everything is in the history of the study of religion that comes out of Europe because um, obviously lots of places have studied religion. Um, Protestants wound up in, in, from Germany and, and England, studied religion a lot. And so sort of Protestantism became the sort of central form through which to study uh, religion. And that is colonialist and uh, all kinds of problems. And, you know, it's a, it, it's a very important critique and, I, and I'm sensitive to it. And one of the things I try to do in my book, and I'm not sure how successful it is, is, is I, I really thought, it, you know, if anyone is the model of religion here that it's being compared to, it's it's the Muslims, and I'm sort of interested in showing how the evangelicals are much more like Muslims than they think they are. Uh, so one of the things I'm really interested in is the centrality of practices and the sort of tension between practices and beliefs, and this is a huge old fight in the sociology of religion and in religious studies more broadly. You know, which comes first practices or beliefs and obviously you need both you know the, the first major practice or pillar of islam is a statement of belief um but one of the things i want to show and here I, I pull on my colleague here at ucla omar lazardo's work with um with michael strand who's, who's a really great sociological theorist is just thinking of beliefs themselves as embodied practices right to say you believe something requires moving your mouth or at least moving some neurons around right or, or flashing some neurons in your head right your, your body is doing something right like you know there, there is no brain in a vat right there is no um no cartesian possibility to just totally exist apart from your body and so um I, I became really interested in just how all these evangelical commitments to right belief and believing the right thing and being suspicious of practices or suspicious of of anything embodied and, and really just doing having the belief and having the spontaneous relationship to God, how all of that stuff is actually embodied and is actually practiced in ways that a lot of the evangelicals um, didn't notice or ideologically predisposed not to notice. Um, and you know, so all of that then gets to uh, I'm interested in practices and how I'm sorry, in boundaries and how boundaries sort of set apart these practices and make them feel more legitimate, make them feel more real because we're sort of set apart from others and they're occurring in a specific place. And so I look at the boundaries of gender and the boundaries of sexuality uh, and the boundaries of just politics in the first three chapters. And one other theoretical distinction I think might be helpful is this very old Aristotelian distinction that got picked up by Thomas Aquinas and others about um, the difference between an essence and an accident. Um, And very few philosophers believe this is true anymore. Very few philosophers believe this is actually how the world works. But a lot of psychologists now believe it is how a lot of human minds work and how we think about things. So essence and accident is basically the idea that there are certain qualities that are essential to a thing. And if a thing does not have those qualities, it is no longer that thing. Uh, And those are essential qualities. Accidental qualities are qualities that are accidental to the thing. And so if it doesn't have that quality, it's still the thing. It's just different in some way. So, one example would be a house. Like, what is essential for a house to be a house? We could say a capacity for people to live in it, right? If a person could not live there, then its essence as a house no longer exists. It is no longer a house. But if we painted a blue house red, that is an accident. The house is still, you know, a house. It's just a blue house or a red house, and, and that doesn't really matter. And, um, this is actually a really useful way it's probably not a useful way to think about things because you know what if the house is a museum house and no one lives there but is it still a house like it actually gets really complicated but um it's a really useful way to think about collective identity because and i'm actually i'd like to work on an article about this uh with someone and i'm talking to a co-author about it but um Because actually psychologists are using this term more and more now to think about how people create this essence and accident distinction all the time. Like people like us have to do these things. And if they don't do these things, then they're not like us anymore, right? So if, um, I don't know, I mean, an example that was relevant until embarrassingly recently was being heterosexual, right? And if you weren't heterosexual in certain communities you were no longer sort of allowed to be a member of that community. That was an essential quality. Right. Whereas now, it actually seems to have become, at least in the circles I'm in, an accidental quality. Right. Like you're certainly welcome to be in our group, whether or not um, you're heterosexual. That's that's accidental. It's not important. Right. And so um, I'm interested in how you know in the realm of politics, uh, sex and gender, this distinction was negotiated in these schools. Right. And so certain people would think of certain qualities as essential and others would think of them as accidental and it became a site of contestation. It became a thing to disagree about, about how, where to put the boundaries and how to define the boundaries. Um, so that's the first three chapters of the book. And then I'm, I mean, I'm happy to talk about how that plays out specifically in them. And then um, the next three chapters uh, is something I, I am working on a paper with um, Carly Knight at NYU who does really great stuff on, on corporate um, corporations understood as agents. And uh, she and I are interested in this process of, of what she calls agentification. And I like that term a lot. So I'm interested, essentially what I'm interested in is three institutions, uh, scripture, prayer, and science. Um, and, you know, they basically fit the sociological definition of institution, right? This kind of thing, this kind of category that has certain normative expectations about what it looks like and how it works and what it is, right? So the classic so the sociological distinction between an organization and an institution would be like i work at ucla ucla is an organization but there's this institution called the university and ucla has certain actually explicitly legal things it has to do and also just broader normative expectations about what a university looks like and how a university is experienced and what a university is expected to do and teach and all that stuff um, and so you know scripture prayer and science are kind of these institutions right but What I'm interested in is is how for certain institutions, they are described and narrated and experienced as actual agents in the world that have authority. So I'm really interested in how people say things like scripture says, or science proves, or prayer changes things, right? Like, what is that doing? What kind of work does that accomplish when an institution is agentified, right? When an institution is described as an agent, given a kind of authority. And one of the things that accomplishes in the schools I studied is it allows teachers and and parents and, and, and adults in the schools to offload um, coercion to something else. And so, you know, schools are very coercive places, you're constantly forcing students to do things and telling them to go places and turn things in and not do things. And um, what's interesting about American evangelicalism and uh, American Islam, um, and this goes back to pretty far in the history of Islam and, and pretty far back in, well, it's, it's more complicated in the history of Protestantism, but, um, and well, in Sunni Islam, I should be clear as well. But the point is, at in, in, in all four schools I was at especially, there was a real emphasis on students have to choose this themselves, right? Students have to make these decisions themselves. Now, of course, the students are there because their parents are making them go there, and the students are there because, you know, the teachers are requiring them to stick around. But you know, the students really did care about, you know, having some sort of agency in this process. And there is a real sense of um, of the importance of autonomy and agency. So how do you get someone to do something you want them to do without you seemingly forcing them to do it? which would then violate your religious commitments to let people do it on their own. Well, you don't do what scripture does, right? So instead of me saying you have to do this because of my sovereign will, I say, look, the Bible says you have to do this, right? That's what the Bible says, or science shows this is necessary, or, you know, prayer will do this, right? And so I'm interested in sort of how these things um, have this kind of uh, external authority. And that's why I call them external authorities, um, external to any one individual in the schools. And I, I hope, anyway, um, that this is generalizable, right? That there are ways that we could think about things like science or the media or the internet or higher education as these kind of agents in the world that are doing things, right? Um, and we sort of imagine them as agentic and authoritative. And so, you know, I'm really lately I've been I've been doing some reading about just how we talk about nations, for example. Like, what the hell does it mean when we say France wants something or France does something? Like, who is France? You know, the, the, the there's no one individual, no matter how powerful, even Louis XIV, despite saying he is the state, was not actually France, right? But yet we're comfortable using this word France and kind of everybody knowing what it means and describing it as an agent in the world that does things and commands things and authorizes things. And so I'm just really interested in in this idea of agentification. And that's kind of what I pick up in the last three uh, chapters of the book. And then I have a conclusion and a method section, and then it's over. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, that was uh, seriously such a lovely description of, um, I mean, of everything. And I, I, my mind is just spinning, especially around these ideas of um, how people are creating boundaries and and the ways in which, you know, the boundaries that you describe. And, you know, you're saying, you're talking about wanting to make this generalizable. And I'm just thinking about, you know, I, I think a lot about ethnic boundary making and racial boundary making and who we are and who we are not. Right. So, I'm also thinking about like who gets to be the people negotiating those boundaries right and who gets to you know so who you're you're talking about institutions having that agency, but also sort of within these um, within if if within the individuals who are describing or who are defining you know what is essential to being, for example, Muslim versus what is actually right? so thinking about black Muslims and non-black Muslims. And, um, and how do those boundaries get negotiated? So that's, I mean, that's such a um, lovely way to think about it. And, um, I really appreciate you describing that. Um, okay. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. So I do, I would love for you to just, um, talk briefly about that methodological appendix, which, um, I, I love reading methodological appendices and just knowing, um, just learning about people's process of field work. And just kind of how you um, how you kind of chose ethnographic observation as your primary method, um, a bit about that process of turning your data into a cohesive story, and how you really bring theory into your writing in a way that I think is read as really organic and fluid.
2: Oh, thank. you. That's so kind of you to say. That's something that's like the compliment will last me the week. I really want my theory to be organic and fluid, so that's very Hi, helpful. Just a
1: week, just a week. All right, I will have to try bigger next time.
2: Yeah, no, no, it was great. It was great. Uh, uh, I, it's hard for me to take a compliment longer than a week because I start doubting them. Um, but I, uh, I, I, I never want to be a part of a club that would have me as a member, but, um, the, uh, yeah, no, uh, thank you for the very kind, kind words. And I, I would say, you know, I, for the, for the methods piece, um, you know, I actually have a chat. I actually have a something I wanted to be a chapter, but my editor didn't think there was space. So it's on my website and I, I, I provide the, the link in, um, In the book, uh, it's called On Being Kicked Out of a Field Site. And I sent it places, but it, um, (laughs) you know, I just, I I didn't really want to make an argument out of it. And I love theory, but I really just wanted it to be a story of being kicked out of a field site because I thought it would be helpful to people. But um, uh, no one, no journal wanted to publish it because there wasn't really an argument there. But, you know, basically there was a new principle, Uh, and the new principle came along, and I was asked to leave. And this is, For anyone doing uh, organizational ethnography, which a school ethnography essentially is, it's not like sitting on a street corner, right? Like you're really dependent on one or a small group of people. And so if, you know, one or a small group of people decides they don't like you there, you're kind of in a world of hurt. Um, And so, and there were other things too. I mean, there were ways that I was um, a very naive dude who was unaware of my privilege in certain ways. And like some girls, some high, school senior girls invited me to play basketball with them. And I, and I made a very deliberate effort not to physically touch any of them, but I still played basketball with them. And I think I, I, I know I offended certain people in the community because I did not respect that gender distinction, uh, which I should have done, you know, and so, and I should have known uh, to say no, uh, to that. And so, you know, there were, um, there were things that definitely helped me to become a better field worker, uh. And uh, in the the next better ethnographer, the next site I was in, and and I think one of the things that I learned um, is that when you're an ethnographer, at least when I was an ethnographer, and you know I'm very aware that I'm a tall white male, and so I'm embodied in different ways. Uh, But when I am an ethnographer, I I can be in this kind of liminal space that makes it feel like I have more freedom than other people in the space do, Um, but I actually didn't have as much freedom as I thought I did. Um, so I thought, yeah, a lot of guys can't talk to, you know, a lot of times, men aren't allowed to talk to, to women. But you know, I'm, I miss this white ethnographer, like, why couldn't I talk to women? That's okay. Um, but it wasn't okay, actually, like, when I was sitting down talking to women in front of others, that was seen as a, as no one corrected me on it at the time, but people noticed it and were upset. So I kind of learned that my liminality had limits, right? Like, I, I wasn't as, as liminal as I thought I was. Um, and uh it was it was a good thing to learn right but i'm and, and you know the other thing is uh thinking about what and actually a reviewer dinged me on this so I, I this is a good chance for me publicly to say um something i think in my methods appendix i said something like i only used the data that was relevant for my argument and, and i think she understood me as admitting publicly i was cherry picking which i very much was not doing like i tried really hard to always look for examples of how my argument was wrong. I think that is one of the most important things good ethnographers do: is not cherry pick. Look for things that are that could prove their theories wrong, that could show heterogeneity, that could show complication. And I, I hope I did that in the book. And, you know, that's up to readers to decide. But I, I hope I did that. But one thing I didn't do, and this is what I meant: by I only use things relevant for my argument. Is I didn't add things that would be embarrassing to my field sites simply because they were embarrassing to my field sites. So, if there were ways to sort of spare my field sites' reputations or individuals' reputations, even though they were anonymous, even though people wouldn't necessarily know who it was, if it wasn't relevant one way or the other, whether to help my argument or hurt it, if it was just this random, embarrassing thing, I, I didn't put it in the book. Um, and, you know, Uh, That's partially because they trusted me with their lives. And and I take that really seriously and I'm really honored and grateful for that. Uh, And it's also because especially at the Muslim schools, there is a growing amount of Islamophobia and I didn't want to have a role in contributing to that, you know? And so, um, I certainly think there are elements of my book. I know there are elements of my book that bother the field sites I'm in. And that's fine. Like that's not, that's, that's, you know, that's not my, my job isn't to make them feel good about themselves in my book, but, um, I don't think I have to publish everything um, just because, you know, I think I, I'm obligated just ethically as a social scientist to publish anything that could prove my argument wrong. And if I hide that, I think that's, I mean, that's the end of science at that point, right? Like that's like, at that point, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not really doing work that's trying to move an argument forward. I'm just, you know, um, I'm just saying stuff, but I don't think I'm obligated um, if it's not relevant to my argument one way or the other to to publish stuff that um, makes these people who trusted me look bad just, just because I could. Uh, And and I thought a lot about that. And, and, you know, and I know there are ethnographers that disagree with me about this, but um, that's, that's where I wind up falling. Um, I think that's the only things that are on my chest to say about methods now, but if you have anything, other questions.
1: No, that was great. Um, And I really, I mean, I appreciate the honesty and the humility, right. To be able to kind of look back at um, who we were at scholars, uh, I'm sure I'm going to look back at who I am right now and, um, have a lot to get off my chest, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you, you sharing about that process. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, we all, we get better. I mean, we get, I mean, I'm so much better at this stuff now than I was then, you know, and like every, even, even just the two field sites I went to second versus the ones I went to first, I was just much better at.
0: Right.
1: Right. Yeah. And sort of, um, giving ourselves grace as we, as we move through that process.
0: Um, yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. Well, Jeff, well we have taken up a lot of your time and I really do wish I could ask infinitely more questions. Um, but I do want to ask before we wrap up, uh, when do we get to read your next book? And oh, wow. ask I'm this question when I'm recording podcasts about during the, during the pandemic, the panini, um, <laughs> how are you taking care of yourself these days?
2: yeah well, that's a great question so i gotta be honest the past two years for me have been really hard so you know i i uh i was diagnosed with ocd in my in my mid-20s uh previous to that i just thought i was a good catholic but it turns out i actually had ocd um and uh yeah. and then i you know and a lot of depression and anxiety that i think are mostly you know results of these sort of obsessive thoughts and the compulsions and Medicine has changed my life. I mean, medicine really did make things a lot easier, but it's still, uh, it's still hard. And there are moments that get really, really hard. And, um, you know, I, I had a, a kid who's the best thing in my life right now. Her name's Evelyn. And she's, um, she's two and a few months now. And she's amazing. Um, but she's a lot of work, you know, and um, My dad died really, really suddenly uh, a little over six months ago. He just was walking across the street and was hit by a car uh, at age 66. And, um, and then I, you know, I entered 40 and so kind of all of these things sort of happened together and it's, it's been, it's been hard and, um, and I haven't been nearly as productive as I, as I want to be. And, you know, I'm always telling people that you're more than your productivity, but obviously it's easier to, to say than to do and to, to preach than to practice. And so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, to read a lot of fiction that really gives me life. Um, you know, watching some, some Netflix shows and talking to my friends about them, Uh, talking to friends a lot, um, you know, spending time with my wife and and my daughter, Uh, going on a lot of hikes. I I can say that, um, walking 10,000 steps a day has been, Incredibly important for my mental health. it has not really done much for my physical health i I regret to say, but it has done a lot for my mental health and i just I feel a lot better uh, on the days when i when i I get a, a good five miles of walking in um and uh you know just trying to this is super cheesy, but it's true i mean just trying to be a, a very kind person when I can and i I really just i do feel better about my life um When I feel like I've been present to people and kind to people, um, it makes my life feel better too. So, um, and (laughs) as we saw with, uh, the, the, the viral bad art friend, I mean, that can, that can go too far. Um, so, you know, not doing it in a way to draw attention to yourself or to sort of fill a hole. Um, and I think that's another thing that I realized actually when I got rejected by the Jesuits, um, uh and they told me i could not be a jesuit is i kind of had this moment where i was sort of profoundly aware that like you know humans are alone and sad right and uh there's a way that sort of sitting with that and accepting that and acknowledging that as part of life uh, and especially because i i struggle with a lot of um you know mean internal dialogue and just very very intense self-criticism that just when i especially when i was a kid it was sort of always just repeated in my head over and over about how terrible i am or whatever um i had a kind of ocd that manifested as just and continues to manifest as just very intense moral scrupulosity so basically just always beating myself or uh, baiting myself up for being a terrible human in one way or the other and so you know just learning to be gentle with myself and kind with myself um and then gentle and kind with others is just you know, daily ongoing process. Um, But one way I think I do get better at being kind to myself is by learning to be kind to others. Um, And so that's something, you know, I try to do. And I'm very much not good at it. Uh, I I mess up all the time, but, um, you know, I try and I keep trying. Um, And yeah, that was a long rambling answer, but I guess that's my answer.
1: No. Oh, Jeff, I I so appreciate you. I just, I so appreciate um, your ability to humanize and um it's just the universality in, in so much of what you're saying. And um I think being able to kind of share some of these things uh in different spaces, especially when we are talking about, you know, book a book that you've written, right? So in some ways it's like this is the the epitome of productivity and um, you know, like how how unbelievable to sort of be at that stage and yet to also say that um that things are difficult and things can be painful. And there's something very shared in um, in our grief and in our, in our pain. And I don't know, sometimes thinking about the universality of that is helpful. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so much goodness in, in what you're, what you're saying about, um, about moving through with gentleness. Right. And um, yeah, I don't know. I I really appreciate, I really appreciate that.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm very much an imperfect vessel of it. But, you know, I, I try to just do what I can. And, and I think the main thing is, you know, uh, try to forgive myself for my, my many, uh, uh, just to maintain the alliteration, forgive myself for my many fuck ups, and just uh, to move on from there, you know, and um, it's, it's hard to do, you know, and like, but there's no other, you know, this is something I learned a long time ago, like, especially as an academic, like we just are constantly in our, and as writers, like we're constantly in our own heads and we're constantly making these implicit and explicit comparisons to others, right? And where other people were at this point of their life and, you know, where other people are published and where other people have jobs and, and it just never ends. You know, and so I, I think that, you know, eventually, and it's, look, it's easy for me to say as someone with a job at UCLA, like I, I know that, right. And so I'm certainly sensitive to that. And I feel uncomfortable even saying it because of that. But uh, I think eventually there, you know, it does kind of be a point where you have, at least I have to find a way to, to be okay with, with who I am um, and, and imagine a world without my achievements and, and not care, not connecting the achievements to um, my deservingness or, or my worth. And um, yeah, obviously that's easier said than done. And, and obviously that's complicated, but that's that's sort of my ongoing struggle. And it will also answer the question, which is that I have a, a contract already with Columbia University Press um, for a book that will hopefully be out um, next, no, um, in 2023. So in like the middle of 2023, Called um, uh, Against Achievement. Uh, and the subtitle is What Meritocracy Misses About Schools. Uh, and it's a theory book that takes on um, how a lot of uh, the study of education, I think, inadvertently reifies um, schools as places to emphasize achievement, and especially socioeconomic achievement, and to fix inequality. Um, and uh, basically my my critique of this and you know i'm very grateful to my fellow sociologists of education who do amazing work studying how schools are deeply unequal places and create all kinds of inequality and so you know it's not that i want that work to stop but i just worry that even if we're saying schools don't fix inequality and they make it worse we're still centering schools in discussions of inequality and um you know i'm kind of going back to John Dewey and also thinking about bell hooks and a bunch of really great theorists and thinkers to think, well, what if schools are just schools, right? What if schools are just places to to learn to love reading and to learn to think about history and math and and be with each other and, you know, learn some stuff, right? And what if we just take for granted that everyone gets to be middle-class and have certain rights because they're human beings and it has nothing to do with achievement. Um, And I know that's crazy and stupid and utopian, but I think it is a helpful way to think. Um, about uh, how we think about schools in America today. And increasingly the way we think about schools in America today is almost exclusively as a way to solve socioeconomic inequality. And that creates a deep feeling of alienation, especially for underprivileged kids for whom school is not about enjoyment or pleasure or beauty or truth or anything. It's about what hoops do you have to jump through so you can have some decent shot of the middle class. And it creates a just terrible way to think about schooling and to experience schooling. so that's the next book, and then the book after that, which is also uh, under review, I've done field work for, and that'll be called um, uh, uh, that'll be called uh, Magical Citizenship: colon, uh, Self and Subject in American Schools. And it's we talked about it a little bit before. It's it be a three part book. Uh, the first part actually looking at um, John Stuart Mill's harm principle, Adam Smith's um, Invisible Hand, and Ralph Waldo Emerson's idea of self real. Uh, of self-reliance and then how people have read them um and and how those three kind of come together to create this idea i'm calling magical citizenship then a historical account of how american schooling has moved from a focus on moral education which was often deeply racist and colonialist but still a focus on moral education um to more of a focus on human capital and then a third section that uses this ethnographic work i talked about to show how um schools themselves sort of to the extent they do civic education, it's interchangeable with the human capital formation. So those are the two books.
1: <laughs> just two casual books. I mean, I wish for you and for me and for everyone to have, you know, the sense of self and self-worth that isn't dependent on these external markers, but sounds like you have some really exciting external markers. Um, I, I hope so. I mean, you'll see, I mean, the
2: problem with doing ambition. The problem with doing ambitious books is you know it's entirely possible they'll just be huge belly flops, but you know i'm hoping I'm hoping they work out, so we'll see
1: I, i'm I'm here for the optimism um <laughs> and the hope well Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time um not only to share about agents of God but also just more about who you are as a scholar uh it's It's been a real privilege
2: well, thanks so much. I really appreciate being here.